Dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. And we're going to begin our reading in just a moment at verse 12. If you want to use the chair Bible, uh, it's on page 913. Acts chapter 5. And again, we'll be reading verses 12 through 21, the first half of verse 21. Well, before we read the Word of God together, let us ask the Lord to Enlighten our eyes with His truth. Let's pray. Lord our God, this is Your Word. A Word that You you tell us rejoices the heart. and makes wise the simple. So Lord, would You be pleased to teach us Your truth this morning and give our hearts a ready reception of what You convey to us. May we see Your power and Your mercy to us and our need of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, And stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Well, thus far, the word of God, and may he bless his word to us. Brother, you may be seated. On the night of June 11th, 1962, two brothers... Clarence and John Anglin and their friend Frank Morris made their infamous escape from the escape-proof maximum security prison on Alcatraz Island, which you remember is off the coast of California. Now these three men were serial criminals and they had all been incarcerated several times, sometimes together, for multiple offenses. In fact, all three had attempted prison escapes before some from the Atlanta pen, interestingly. And that's why they were now locked up at Alcatraz. But their previous failed attempts to escape did not discourage them. With adjoining cells at Alcatraz for six months, these guys crafted an elaborate plan to dash. First, they discarded saw blades from the prison workshops and metal spoons from the chow hall. And using the motor of a vacuum cleaner, they're ingenious, They made a drill to widen the ventilation ducts in their cells. They hid their work with painted cardboard. 
and used the music hour in the prison and their friend John playing the accordion to cover over the noise of their work. Second, once they could, they could fit through the holes, they set up a secret workshop in a vacant section of an upper cell block. And here they made a life raft using 52 raincoats stitched together that they had stolen and sealed with liquid plastic from the shops. They also made wooden paddles and life vests and, get this, paper mache dummies of heads to place in their beds. And these sculptures, I encourage you to go look at it. These sculptures were quite realistic, made from a mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper, along with real hair from the barbershop. These guys could have been engineers. They could have been artists. What a wasted life. Well, on the night of the skate, they climbed up the ventilation shaft to the roof. They slid down a kitchen vent pipe. They scaled two uh, 12-foot barbed wire fences. They went to a blind spot they knew about from the, the, the search lights that were taking place on Alcatraz. They inflated their raft with a concertina. You can ask Dr. Reams about that. Uh, it's accordion of sorts. And they pushed off. And though a search started early the next morning and it was elaborate for many days, the guys were never found. Now the official story is they drowned because uh, a paddle, a wallet from one of the Angl angling boys, uh, and some shredded raincoat material washed up near the Golden Gate Bridge. So they thought they must have drowned in the frigid water. But no bodies were ever discovered. Many claim to have seen the men since. And interestingly, the Anglin boy's mother received, not on Mother's Day, but anonymous flowers every year until... She died after the escape in 1973. I guess we'll never know what really happened. Well, as fascinating as that escape is, the one in our text is even more amazing. Because, for one, there's no question that they all survived. And then secondly, it's a supernatural event. I'm titling this sermon, An Angelic Jailbreak. You see, the apostles have been unjustly incarcerated but they don't make a beeline for safety on some distant shore. They go right back to preaching the risen Christ in the temple. The apostles are not seeking safety, but they remain steadfast in their mission, which is to preach Christ. Preach Christ. And before we get to the prison doors bursting open, we see the proximate cause of the imprisonment. The apostles are doing wonders. They're preaching Christ. It arouses the hatred of the Sanhedrin. And then they're going to be locked up. Well, let's note four things in our text. We begin with awe. Awe. Thus far, Luke has focused our attention really on one miracle, the healing of the lame man. And besides Pentecost, this is the only wonder we've heard about. However, the making alive of that man's dead legs is just a drop in the bucket of the things the apostles were doing as divine mercies flowed through them. Verse 12, we read that they were regularly doing many signs and wonders. And Luke is careful to note that these multiple miracles were performed by the hands of, that is through the instrumentality of, the apostles. As Peter had made clear already with the lame man, the apostles didn't have the power in themselves to heal, but Jesus is healing through them. 
Jesus is the divine agent of power, and they are the tools. His resurrection is at work. And while no one is seeing Jesus with his eyes, Jesus is alive. Jesus is changing lives. The title for the book of Acts, you remember, is the long version. The Acts of the Risen Christ through the Spirit working in the apostles. you got to remember that. Now while this little section is telling us about various miracles, the miracles performed, we must remember, are not ends in themselves. The signs and wonders authenticate the Word. They declare God is at work and you need to pay attention to the revelation, the Word, about Christ. Because it's not the miracles that create faith or save souls. God is saving souls through Christ being preached. Faith comes by hearing. So it says the Word is proclaimed that the Lord is saving people. And that preaching continues here as they're all gathered in Solomon's portico. The apostles are refusing to be stopped in proclaiming the Word and the work they're doing isn't done in a corner. Like Jesus' miracles, everything is out in the open. The church is being eyed with great hatred, but they haven't gone into hiding. They're in the temple precinct. And brethren, that's remarkable in view of the intense threatening of Peter and John from the previous chapter. They had already been in prison. The authorities are breathing down their neck and telling them, stop speaking or teaching at all in Jesus' name. But they prayed for boldness and they won't quit. And not only did they pray against the gag order, that they would keep preaching with boldness, they prayed, chapter 4, verse 30, that the Lord would stretch out His hand to heal. Again, He he heals. And that signs and wonders, same language, would be performed in the name of Jesus. They know that the previous miracle led to persecution, but they don't want the miracles to vanish no matter what it costs them. So they pray for the power of Christ even though trouble will come. And the Lord is answering prayer we should never pass by seeing that God is answering prayer. Brethren, this is who our God is. He's a God who answers prayer. And yet as the signs and wonders drew crowds and stirred amazement, made folks stop and listen to the preached word, notice there's another wonder of another kind here. Verse 13, we read that none of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem. Why are people seeing the power of Christ and not daring to join them, not willing to come along with the people of God to join the church? Well, the previous passage, if you remember, was a wonder. What did God do? God killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying. And that reality wasn't just known among the church. Verse 11, it was known to the people at large. So those not sensible of their sin, not really seeing their need for Christ, they stand back in awe of what is going on. Brethren, the people will acknowledge supernatural power. They will recognize that God is working mightily. Maybe they would even declare like the Egyptian magicians, this is done by the finger of God. But that is not at all the same thing as repenting and believing, as feeling conviction of sin and then following Jesus Christ. Great fear, awe, 
lingers over the populace. And maybe they're like the pig herders at Gerasene. Do you remember the Gerasene region where Jesus cast the demons out of the Gerasene demoniac? The very Jesus who commands demons, who subdued that unsubduable man, those people asked Him to leave. Why? His power frightened them. He's untamable. He can't be controlled. What might He do to them if they toy with sin? Well, that's the attitude of the people at large. What might Christ do to us if we carry on in our sin? So the populace is wonderstruck, but they're not heartstruck. They are in awe, but they're not afflicted in their consciences that they must repent and seek Christ. They have a respect and esteem for the community of faith, but it's not a faith-motivated respect. They don't want Christ. They don't want divine power to search out their hearts. They don't want to walk in the presence of the living God. Now, of course, the irony is you can't escape the presence of the living God. And these odd people daring not to run to Jesus will face Jesus in judgment. And the awe they have at the last day will make this awe look inconsequential. But then there will be no hope for them. Beloved, we must recognize that sinners can see that the Lord is mighty and that the Lord is moving, but not want Him to move in them. So they keep the Lord at a distance. And they do that thinking they're protecting themselves. They think they can appreciate divine power from afar and not have that power make any demands on their lives. What a foolish mistake. And let it be known to us that it's religious people here who are doing this. These odd folks are people coming to the temple. They are, by all appearances, covenant people. But when holiness gets close, when God's acts and God's words arrest their attention, they withdraw. But when Jesus comes in judgment, there will be no place to hide, nowhere to stand back and just watch. Now is the day of salvation. And salvation isn't merely noticing the power of God and respecting the true people of God. Salvation is fleeing to Christ now in the day of His mercy. It's hiding from the Lord in the Lord and taking refuge in His name. Salvation isn't miracle faith, which the children of Israel had in the wilderness and all perished in unbelief. Salvation is running to the Lord for His mercy. Brethren, what's the status of our souls? Are we intimidated by holiness and trying to maintain a distance from Christ? Do we want, I'll put it this way, a Jesus appreciation, but not a Jesus allegiance? One author put it this way, I would like to buy $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Not enough to make me actually want to deny myself. Maybe enough to make me happy, but not enough to give me, get me addicted. I don't want so, so much gospel that I actually learn to hate my sin, to hate covetousness and lust. 
I want transcendence, but not transformation. Do we resist the resurrection power of Christ that will renovate everything in your life? Your habits, your patterns, your words, your loyalties. Some of you can see the work of God among others of you. But that doesn't mean you're actually embracing the God who changes people. Let us all take heed to ourselves. Because seeing the work of Christ and knowing it's the work of Christ is not the same thing as committing yourself to the work of Christ. It's still unbelief and it's culpable. So there's a sad note to begin, this awe. But then we see additions. Verse 14, much like we've seen previously, unbelief is strong with many, and yet the Lord is also saving people at the same time. The Word of God is making a divide. Divine power frightens some and draws others near. We read verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So while the Word of God is resisted, the same Word is winning souls. These authenticating signs and wonders are pressing many in their hearts that they need to run to Jesus now. And that shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this with Jesus, particularly the leper. He came up to Jesus, which you don't do if you're a leper, by the way. But he comes to Jesus. If you were willing, he said, you can make me clean. There was no doubt in Jesus' ability. There was a wonder about Jesus' willingness. But power drew him close. That could be said with blind Bartimaeus calling out for Jesus to have mercy on him. Well, here, multitudes who know the rot in their heart are running to Christ, running to see themselves joining to Jesus. And while the church is being persecuted and persecution is intensifying, the church is still growing. Well, brethren, this is a principle we also need to recognize. The church is both assaulted and having success. Tribulation mounts. Unbelievers are all around, but the power of God is still at work. That is a normative reality for the church. The signs and wonders happening in this passage are not normative. These will not always continue. But the fact that the word is both assaulted and the word is advancing, that's always happening. Because the Spirit of God will never permit assaults of the ungodly to put out the light of the truth. And there may be seasons where it seems growth has stalled, when threats are everywhere, when compromise seems to still the gospel's advance. But external or even internal trouble can never stop the true gospel from working. And that is to be an encouragement to us. Brethren, we live in dark times. We all are recognizing that increasingly, aren't we? We live in days like the northern kingdom of Israel where the religious who speak the Lord's name are compromisers, ignoring the word of God. But even then, there were 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah felt alone, but it wasn't true. The Lord was still multiplying His people. And that's what our God does. Sometimes many are saved, sometimes few are saved, but God is always adding to His church. Success happens even amidst the storm clouds. And this is why we can never be silent with the Gospel. It's why you need to keep praying that the glorious truth 
about Christ and His unsearchable riches are heralded forth because again, that is God's means to save His people. The enemies of the Gospel may come against us with power and threats. They may even kill some of us. But the Gospel will not be stopped. It will not be chained. It will not be nullified. The gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. You know, we often think about that as if hell is coming to attack us, but gates are stationary things. And that means the gospel is advancing to blow down the doors of hell. That's our encouragement. And yet there are two quick things I want you to notice still under this heading. Notice the language in the text of believers added to the Lord. Added to the Lord. That's striking. And it's obvious from the last passage that not everyone in the church is a believer. Hypocrites are still there. Ananias and Sapphira. We'll see more to come. But Luke states that these additions weren't simply adding to the church, but to the Lord. Now, what's the significance of that language? Well, it's to remind us that an attachment to Jesus, which we cannot see, is tangibly seen by an attachment to the church. Or to put it provocatively, you can't ordinarily be attached to the Lord without an attachment to His church. To say these people were added to the Lord is not simply to acknowledge they became Christians. It's to recognize while some dared not join the ranks of the believers, others were openly, tangibly daring to attach themselves to Christ's people. They transferred their allegiance from whatever idols they served and they clung to Christ and His people. And they were recognized to be the Lord's people. This is something of the idea of church membership. That idea will be further developed in the New Testament with comments like in Acts, adding to the number that we can calculate who's in and who isn't. Or there's a widow's list that we know who's on it, or choosing deacons or elders from among you. We know who's in and who's out. But right here, being a part of the church is recognized for its reality. We're not adding to our little club. We're adding to the Lord. We're part of His body. And we show with our lives that our loyalties now lie with Christ and His people. A second little thing here, still under the heading of additions. Luke points out that among the multitudes added to the Lord, there were both men and women. Now, why say that explicitly? Well, throughout Luke's writing, in his first volume, he's constantly pointed out the role of women. We've heard before in Acts of 3,000 men. Now the number is 5,000 men, but now we're hearing men and women. We heard about the women who supported Jesus and the apostles in Luke 8. The women devoting themselves to Jesus and His death. Luke 23, the women being the first witnesses of the resurrection. This is a theme in Luke. Why is Luke stressing this? Well, I think because both in the Greco-Roman world and among the Jews specifically, women were demeaned, devalued, and viewed to be incapable of theological direction. Women could not be disciples in ancient Judaism. That is not the case with Christianity. 
Jesus intentionally taught Mary and Martha. Jesus had the most significant conversation that we know about that He ever had about worship with the Samaritan woman. Jesus then revealed His risen glory first to Mary Magdalene and others that they would be witnesses to the witnesses. Now, I've sought to point this out repeatedly throughout Luke's Gospel, both Volume 1 and Volume 2, because again, it's an emphasis. But I stress to you one more time, women may have been disregarded by the ancient world, and they may, through the claim of some, they may appear to be degraded by Christianity. That is not the case. The Lord is adding them to Himself as part of His people. Yes, they will not have the same roles in the church. They're not called to be apostles or preachers or officers, but their inclusion is strikingly countercultural, and you shouldn't miss it. Thirdly, see with me the afflicted heal. Thus far, Luke has painted a picture of the apostles doing these wonders, which bring awe and additions. And now it seems Luke is describing the ongoing awe, the esteem, coupled with the active faith of some and just simply the amazement by others as people come for healing. Now, just as Jesus was sought out for healing, the paralytic with his friends coming to Jesus, lowering through the roof, how would you like that to happen in the middle of the sermon? It gets your attention, wouldn't it? Jairus coming with concern about his daughter. People did this with Jesus, and now they're coming to the instruments of Christ. Verse 15, people even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, frankly, this is just weird. It's strange. Doesn't it sound strange to you that they're hoping that even Peter's shadow would fall? It's similar, I think, in kind to the woman with a flow of blood telling herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. But of course you remember Jesus, while healing her, didn't allow her to touch and run. Because there's something more important than physical healing. It's true faith in Christ and then the expression of that faith publicly. So Jesus didn't let her go. But here Luke is telling us what folks are doing. They're doing anything they can to get near to Peter. Now Luke does not say that Peter's shadow healed anyone. He's just describing the crowd's expectation, how they're yearning for physical relief. And then he furthers the description, verse 16 saying, the people also, and this is the people generally and not just believers, they gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And I want to focus on the all in verse 16. Masses of people are flocking to Jerusalem from greater Judea. It's a little indication that the gospel is starting to spread, by the way. They've heard of healing power, and they're desperate, so they come with their sick and those possessed by demons. Just like people came when Jesus was at Peter's mother-in-law's house in Mark 1 and it healed her from a fever. They flocked there and they wanted healing. Well, Luke makes no comment here to the faith of these people. Clearly, they have miracle faith. But as we've seen from the ministry of Jesus, that's not the same thing as saving faith. 
Jesus healed multitudes in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he points out, if the miracles done in you had been done in places like Tyre and Sidon or in Sodom, they would have repented. And yet many in Galilee didn't repent. Well, something similar is happening here. Droves are coming, but among the droves, we're told, all were healed. Now this is not to say that the apostles healed every sick person in all of Jerusalem any more than Jesus healed every sick person in all of Jerusalem. But it does say something about the compassion of the apostles flowing from the compassion of Christ. Why heal people who don't repent? Jesus did it too. Why heal people who don't repent? Out of love. Out of mercy. To show the willingness of the Lord to pardon, to restore, to listen and answer the cries of the needy for help. Now, of course, the need of the Lord is greater than just this temporary fix to the body. But the Lord is willing to show His pity in healing physical broken bodies. And it's as though the miracles are shouting to sinners, the Lord, the risen Christ, is willing to help you. And if He can cure your physical body, He can cure what really ails you, the depth of your own soul. You must turn to Him for life. And we should see the Lord willing to pity the people at large. And we should learn something, I think, from the compassion of the apostles. We don't, as a church, reserve mercy to those marked with faith in Christ. We do good to all. Yes, especially to the household of faith, but we do good to all. We abound with goodness to the needy that kindness might lead them to repentance. Do we have that perspective? A willingness to do good to all. But then the all is interesting for another reason. Maybe you remember a particular episode in the Gospels where Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there was a father who had brought a demon-possessed boy to the disciples for the demon to be cast out and they couldn't do it. Nine of the twelve are at the foot of the mountain. They've already done numerous miracles. Jesus sent them on a long missionary journey. They're healing the sick. They're casting out demons. But here, they can't do it. Evidently, they began to presume upon their power without looking to the Lord in dependence. And then, boom, they're powerless. Jesus tells them later, this kind only comes out through prayer. Some say prayer and fasting. I won't get into that discussion. But there's a, a corrective that your power doesn't work automatically. You must depend upon me. But here, brother, no one is walking away unhealed. What does it mean? It means the apostles are depending on the risen Lord as they do these wonders. They're not trusting in themselves. Christ is the agent of healing. But I think it also means, at least from the perspective of the devil trying to cause trouble, it means Satan can't win. The vast array of demonic possession in Jesus' day and in this foundational period of the early church should be seen as Satan's all-out assault, throwing everything he's got to stop Jesus, and when that fails, to stop the spread of the church. He is bringing out all of his arsenal, and he's firing it. 
and it fails. Now, this doesn't mean Satan gets no small victories. We'll see he has little triumphs. The stoning of Stephen, the scattering from Jerusalem, the slaughter of James, the preventing of Paul going certain places. But those high points for the kingdom of darkness cannot thwart the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. These miracles done to all are to show us that Satan's great aim to tarnish creation and bring ruin is being undone. The Lord is tangling the mess brought by sin and Satan and He's fixing it, which will well up into a day when Christ returns. And then when Christ comes back, all afflictions are healed. These are signs that disease, demons, and death are being defeated. And that is still true for us. The enemies are overcome and the gospel is advancing. Finally see another attack. Now as you can imagine, the miracles worked are getting lots of attention. And the Jewish leadership, just as they were envious of Jesus here, verse 17, are filled with jealousy. So the attack. The high priest comes with his party, the Sadducees. They want to stop this resurrection power nonsense in their perspective. In verse 18, they arrest all the apostles and put them in public prison. Now previously, Peter and John were prominent, but here now, all the apostles are preaching and performing signs and wonders. So the Sadducees lock all of them up. But again, this will not be one of Satan's little victories. Because verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Run for your lives! No. Go stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. What does that mean? No authority, no authority can stop, that is human authority, can stop the preaching of the gospel. And the disciples, the apostles, they do exactly what they've been told. At daybreak, verse 21, they obey the angel, they enter the temple, and they begin to teach. Again, don't, don't miss. They're not running away from trouble. They're not released to get out of town. Now, there will be times later when Paul escapes near death or he's forced out. But here the angel of the Lord sends him right back into the line of fire. Now, of course, the whole episode will cause the Sadducees, who were basically anti-supernaturalists, to be confronted with the supernatural. More on their response next week. But they've ignored all the miracles performed in their midst. Will they now ignore God overturning their imprisonment, just like God overturned their crucifying of Jesus? Will they see that their command to Peter and John to stop speaking or teaching at all in the name of Jesus is contrary to the will of God? For not only did Peter and John defy that order, now all of the apostles are defying it. And the angel is telling them to defy it. Yes, it's true. Christians are called to obey the governing authorities for there's no authority given except what is given by God, but authorities cannot forbid what God has commanded. No authority can set himself up against King Jesus. More about that next week. But the specific command here, speak to the people all the words of this life. That's an interesting phrase. The idea is, testify all the words of Jesus who is 
alive. He is the resurrection and the life. He gives life through His Word. So preach His death, preach His resurrection, preach His ascension. Preach His fulfillment of Scripture, His obedience in our stead. Preach His call to sinners to repent and believe. Preach that the living Christ can awaken the spiritually dead. Don't hold anything back. Don't modify the message. Don't leave parts out that offend the sensibilities of the people. Speak all the words of this life. All He's commanded you to speak. Brethren, this is the charge that remains upon the church today through her appointed heralds. No matter what evil forces rage against the church, there can be no altering the message, no softening the message to make it fit with cultural sensibilities. There can be no focus on mere ethical matters. Preach all the words of this life. Preach the living Christ. Preach that He's the prophet, priest, and king, the greater David, the greater Moses, the seed of the woman. Preach He is the great I Am. Preach He is the servant of the Lord who bore our sin and shattered the curse. Preach that He alone saves. Preach that you must run to Christ and find your guilt cleansed only in Jesus. Preach repentance. Preach the necessity of faith. Preach He has the power to raise the dead. Well, brethren, there are many, many today who are softening this message. Who are taking away the truth that Christ is bodily raised and saying it's really not a big deal to talk about that. Who are making excuses for the miracles of Christ and being anti-supernaturalists. Who say, yeah, we'll preach Jesus, but we're really not going to preach His ethics because they're ancient ethics. And they don't affect us in our modern worldview. No. Preach all the words of this life. You have no authority to change the message. Well, may God give His people here boldness to preach all the words of His life, no matter the opposition. May we be willing to speak the truth when assault may come our direction. May we have a readiness to obey the commission of the Lord and whatever Satan tries. May the Gospel of Jesus ring out here. Because here's what Satan can never do. He can lock up preachers. He can attack Christians. He can kill men of God. But he cannot chain the Word of God. May we hope that our God will prevail. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray You would encourage us with Your truth in this text. We pray that you would, we would see Your divine power to overcome all opposition. We pray that we would see that no weapon formed against Your people shall prosper. And Lord, we pray with that encouragement. We pray that we would not triumphalistically believe we'll never have trouble, but we pray rather we'll preach and speak of Christ through our troubles and trust Your means to save souls. For we pray this in the mighty name of King Jesus and all of God's people said,